Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome to Exploring Mormon Thought. We're going to continue our discussion of epistemology and spiritual experiences. Today we're going to be talking about how other faith traditions and spiritual experiences within them may pose a problem for this idea that we've been talking about, how a spiritual experience can be a valid way to gain knowledge or to say that you have you know, gained an authentic experience confirming the truth of Mormonism. You know, anyone can say that about their own religion and can't necessarily deny that. So that's what we're going to talk about today. So you start out in saying the fact that there are intelligent, honest, and committed individuals who have differing religious beliefs presents a challenge. At the very least, such differing visions demand that we confront this question. What is it in this alternative vision that a virtuous and spiritually mature individual finds to be so valuable that he or she would dedicate his or her life to it? Only when we can answer this question will we be in a position to assess the alternative honestly and charitably. However, there is a different challenge posed when such individuals report that they have spiritual experience that confirms to them the veracity and soundness of their commitment. The fact that intelligent, honest, and virtuous individuals have such confirmatory spiritual experiences suggests that God may call others to differing religious visions. And if there is a God... And if there is a single unitary truth, then why would God confirm the value of another religious tradition, assuming that these experiences disclose something of God's will for them? These are the questions that I seek to explore in this chapter, so that's what we're going to be talking about today. Other than that, in introducing the subject, do you have anything to add there? Yeah, we're going to be discussing the challenge of alternative religious views, and to credit those views the way that they deserve and value to be credited, and at the same time looking at one's own spiritual knowledge in comparison to those alternative views. And so this is a challenge, I think, that is very generally felt by people, and I don't think it takes any particular philosophical acumen to grasp this kind of a challenge. That is definitely true. Okay, so you go into more in-depth on some of this in your paper, but we're going to skip over some of it and just kind of get to the core of it, but I'll give a brief summation. So all throughout book two, and we did podcasts about every chapter in that, you discuss this idea that when we're here in this life, we obtain a body, and we didn't have that before. But while we have this body, we have sense experiences, and these sense experiences can kind of overwhelm things. And as we know, it seems like this is the only reality that exists, and this is the sole, you know, sum total of our experience. And so the challenge of that is that we have at least in our religious tradition and most Christian and I guess, well, I guess most religious traditions have some form of needing to overcome that to connect to a spiritual life. So, you know, if the Spirit's trying to communicate to your heart, trying to hear that through with the noise of all of your other senses and all that's going on, is kind of the challenge that life presents to us. And then you give a summary of that, of how we can all strive to overcome that by listening to the Spirit and opening up our hearts and letting God or Jesus or whoever come and indwell within us and set us free, and then we'll continue in that relationship until the perfect day is a famous way to phrase that in Mormonism. So there's that, and I think most people would agree to that, but you ask, nevertheless, why should Mormons believe that everyone else but themselves continues to hide this truth from themselves so that they cannot feel the truth in their hearts? And you say, in fact, as I've argued previously, in Mormonism, there is no such claim. And we'll talk about this a bit more, but what is Mormonism's claim about this kind of problem, first off? Well, first of all, there are universals in Mormon thought, and in fact, I would say generally in Christian scripture, that all persons are endowed with the light of Christ, and that all are endowed with a measure of spiritual knowledge. And that, as we've looked at previously, what the scriptures teach is that we each have implanted within us, within our hearts, the law, or the word, as Paul would put it, or a seed that grows into the tree of life, as Alma would state it. 
the notion is, is that our hearts are the seat of spiritual knowledge. We're in touch with ultimate eternal realities at the very core of our being. And because we're in touch, we have an instrument, if you will, that is our very being that vibrates and resonates in response to the truth when it is spoken. And so what we receive isn't so much a propositional revelation as a kind of what I call an existential communication following Kierkegaard. The reason that Mormons don't have a corner on this market, therefore, is that every human who's ever existed has been endowed with this kind of a knowledge. The real key is the self-deception that we engage in to hide this truth from ourselves. And, you know, I can hear all of the non-Mormons and non-Christians, and especially those who have denied their testimonies. You want to say that you're superior and everybody else is a rotten person? Well, that just isn't, you know, the view is that all of us engage in some form of self-deception, and we hide the truth from ourselves. We choose to harden ourselves, every single one of us. And what we're asked to do repeatedly in the scriptures is to open our hearts to feel and to experience the truth already planted therein. And so the real question is, will we repent of having hardened our hearts? And that's why the first movement in conversion back to the gospel is to repent. And when I say conversion back to the gospel, what I mean is, is that as children, we're all in touch with this kind of a thing before we decide to close off. And the environment in which that can occur is the environment of atonement, an environment where um, two things are true. That is, we are accepted as we are in unconditional love because God is loving and he gives his love to us as a sheer grace. And in an environment where he overcomes our subjectivity by becoming a part of our subjectivity and entering into our very lives when we open our hearts to let him in. And so he overcomes the boundaries and barriers by himself taking up a boat in us and taking the risk of allowing us to take up a boat in him so that eventually we're in each other and our mutual light is magnified by each other. And so that we grow in the light together, we magnify each other. And through our mutual love, we're greater than we would be if we were all alone. And the invitation has been extended to every human being who ever existed. This is not unique to Mormonism, and Mormons are not the only one who partake in the light of Christ. In fact, it would be directly contrary to what Mormons teach and what the Mormon scriptures teach to say that only Mormons have access to this kind of truth. What Mormonism claims is that it is further light in knowledge, that it is more light than previously possessed. And so Mormonism doesn't assert that all Christians or all Jews or all Buddhists or Confucians or all Muslims are mistaken. What it claims is that they're all incomplete or less complete than Mormonism because Mormonism's not yet complete. And there's a lot we don't know and a lot yet to be revealed. And so what is being offered is simply greater light and knowledge. And we're being, invite, being invited into a more intimate relationship. And so that's the way that I believe Mormonism positions itself with respect to this issue. And then we'll test that out against a few arguments here. So as you pointed out, maybe not only atheists, but people of other religions might be like, well, how do you know that we're not the ones with the further light and knowledge and you're the ones that have lesser light or something like that? So in this next section called The Objection from Conflicting Belief Systems, you say it's often been argued that differing doctrinal systems demonstrate that spiritual experiences are not a trustworthy basis for beliefs. The argument is essentially that if there is really a God who conveys knowledge of the truth through spiritual experiences, then one would expect that this message would be consistent to the various people that claim to have spiritual experiences. And if God were really behind the various traditions of revelation that claim to have this knowledge and claim to have the truth revealed to them by God, then he would speak the same truth. So you kind of formally lay out the argument like this. One, there are many religions in the world. Two, the teachings of these religions seem to be logically incompatible because they differ regarding whether A, God, the ultimate, is personal or impersonal, B, whether there is one God or many, C, whether the afterlife consists of many cycles of rebirth or a single unending afterlife, D, whether we ultimately lose consciousness and merge with ultimate reality or retain individuality and consciousness, E, whether the locus of revelation is the Bible, the Torah, the Quran, the, the Bhagavad Gita, the Upanishads, etc. Or F, whether the divine is incarnated many times, once, or never. G, the problem of the human condition is sinfulness, ignorance, or desire. 
or H, the solution to the human plight is atonement and grace, or a good life, or enlightenment and action. So, number three, therefore, because of all these conflicting religious beliefs, not all religious beliefs can be true in a literal sense. Therefore, at least some religions have some false beliefs. Therefore, no religious beliefs are justified because it's impossible to determine which religious beliefs are true. And number six, it is impossible to tell which religious beliefs are true because evidence from conflicting spiritual experiences that supposedly occur in each religion to validate them as the one true way cancel each other out. So that's the basic argument saying like, well, they can't all be true. For example, you can't, I mean, I just went over this, but I remember on my mission, I had a guy that wanted to believe in Jesus Christ and being resurrected. Then he also wanted to believe in reincarnation and multiple lives. And like, well, I mean, those seem to be not compatible with one another and they can't both be true. I mean, I admire you saying, you know, all religions are true, but no, they can't all be true because they can directly conflict sometimes. Yeah, I think when people say all religions are true, what they're saying is all religions can make a person's life better or something of that nature. They're not saying that the truth content of the propositional beliefs that one holds is, is in fact true. They're using the word truth in an equivocal sense. And yeah, I think that's for the most part true, but sometimes some of these claims might be less examined as well. But anyway, I put this as the rebuttal, but it takes some fleshing out first. So you point out that praxis or the practicing of one's religion would generally take priority over doctrinal issues within one's religion. In other words, the things that the religion has you do, like you said, the lifestyle that it does is going to take, I don't know if you say precedence, but it's going to come logically first for most people before they even have the opportunity to form like a full-blown theology. So you often give this example, but we had a sister in our ward growing up, this nice old lady from Germany, and like you always point out, you know, she definitely couldn't put together and explain coherently the doctrine of Mormon theology probably to save her life, other than maybe some very simple things. But she was, by all accounts, a saint. She was just a, a sweet, old, loving lady that practiced her religion and just because she didn't necessarily have all the correct or full understanding of the exact theology didn't really stop her from getting out of the religion what it offered. So is that kind of what you're getting at there? Yeah, and also that it has to be the case that what's primary isn't isn't accurate beliefs. The truth be known, every single one of us holds some inaccurate beliefs and we often become aware of that because we change our beliefs over time as we grow. We're all aware that we're not always correct in what we believe. So we all hold some beliefs that are erroneous. And it can't be that heaven is limited to those who can accurately formulate a theology of beliefs. And if that were the case, there'd be very few people who would make it into heaven. And I've, I've argued that no traditional Christian would because I don't believe their, their system of beliefs is coherent, even remotely. I don't think that stops them from being true Christians, and they might argue the contrary for Mormons, and in fact do argue the contrary, but I think that's uncharitable. I think what the truth is, is that the way that we believe is not what's central to a religious belief system. Rather, what is important in faith is what the trust part of faith is. So in Latin and Greek and Hebrew, the word for faith is a cognate for the word for trust, or actually the word for trust. And it means interpersonal trust. And so what's at issue is whether or not we trust God in relationship to our lives, whether we trust those that are in our lives with us to love them and to be in our lives and to be vulnerable and open to them. So I think that what is most important really is the interpersonal aspect and the relational aspects of any belief system. Now, I say a belief system, it's a minimal belief system. All I really have to believe is that there are other mind-independent beings that aren't me and that I can be in relationship with them, that they actually exist and that what they're doing when they give me their word is that they may keep it or not. But with respect to God in particular, I extend my entire life and depend upon him in such an essential way that my entire heart, mind, and strength is set upon him. And in this respect, I'm, I'm calling God a hymn for Buddhists and Confucians and so forth. God is not personal. And there's this kind of this cosmic force, if you will. I don't want to say it's Star Wars because it isn't. That would be trivializing it way beyond what would be justified. But the fact is, is they don't have a personal deity. And so they differ in that respect. 
but they still have this basic trust in life and in existence. And so when we talk about praxis, what we're talking about is the ways that we show our trust in God, the way that we show our worshipfulness and thankfulness to God for what he's done for us. And then I'll make this observation. The doctrines that follow are usually several steps removed from the basic religious experiences that give rise to the doctrines. I'll give an example. Most Mormons will really resonate with this. Joseph Smith had a first vision, and he wrote it down several times. The church, for a long time, tended to focus on an 1842 Wentworth letter, where he emphasized that there were two distinct beings. And they said, oh, from the very beginning, Joseph Smith was aware that the Trinity was false, and Father and the Son were two distinct beings, because he saw them that way. But that's just totally false. That's not how it happened. I'm not saying that he didn't see two distinct beings. What I'm saying is he didn't emphasize two distinct beings because it wasn't the first thing that was important to him. And he didn't learn from that experience the nature of the Godhead. He learned from the nature of the Godhead over a period of time. I'll make this observation because it's true of my own spiritual experiences, and I imagine it's true of his. He continued to learn from his spiritual experiences and learn from them more and more as he pondered on them and reflected on his experiences. He continued to learn from the experiences and the revelations given. Not everything is realized up front. And so oftentimes the spiritual experiences are further groundwork for further reflection. But the way that doctrines get defined in relation to those experiences, none of the doctrines are really inherent in the experience itself. I mean, it's possible that Joseph Smith could have interpreted that to say, oh, God decided to take this form for purposes of this manifestation instead of being a burning bush. And he's not really revealing anything essential about the way he actually is, which is one way that it could be interpreted. And certainly those would be a viable interpretation within any religious tradition because God can appear in a lot of different ways. And so when we look at the basic spiritual experiences, there are several steps removed from the doctrinal formulations that then later come about to make sense of them. I think the doctrine of Christ in particular as the embodiment of the Messiah, which is a culturally conditioned belief, of Christ as the Son of God, also culturally conditioned belief, Christ as the one who is in the Trinity, which took several centuries to develop before it made any sense at all. These kind of beliefs are based upon a centuries-old experience of a person who was so loving that his love couldn't be killed, who walked around the Palestinian countryside. And the reality of this is that the basic experience of Christ is almost lost to us in the nature of the interpretation that gets involved in the written description of what's occurring because that interpretation is laid over the basic experience. That's what I wanted to say is very simply that the bedrock of any religion, if you will, are the shared spiritual experiences of a community and not really the doctrinal formulations. The doctrinal formulations are a way of expressing reality based upon those experiences, but that usually comes from eggheads who do their best for, you know, there are people like me who say, you know, I want to do my best to put this in a way that expresses, well, what I believe in the, I believe it's very inspiring to express it in, in these ways because it gives further insight. But only a truly committed religious person is going to start to come up with these kind of things because a person like me wants to be able to express the fullness of their insight into the religion. And for me, it was a religion into which I was born, though it's a religion into which I was also born again. And, you know, it takes recommitment all the time. But the bottom line is for me that doctrines are secondary in terms of what's core in a religious tradition. Having said that, there are differing positions on the relation between beliefs and then salvation. So whether or not you have to have these correct beliefs in order to gain salvation or, you know, however a certain religion would define that. So you go over three of them and we're going to talk about each of them. So the first is called exclusivism which is basically the view that salvation and truth are found in only one religion. This view comes in a number of different forms. There's extreme exclusivism that maintains that only one's own religious faith is true and salvific, and all others are inspired by evil or demonic forces. There's also more moderate exclusivism, which holds that there may be some truth in other religious views, but only one's own view leads to actual salvation. So let me break that down. There's what I would call soteric exclusivism and basically cognitive exclusivism. So soteric exclusivism is that this is the only way to salvation. Cognitive exclusivism is the view that only my religion is true. We're, we're the ones who preach the true doctrines that actually reflect reality. Those are two different. One could believe that one's, for instance, one's religion is soteriologically exclusive, 
but might not have grasp of all the truth, but it would be still a type of exclusivism. So it's important that there's a further distinction here, but they're both types of exclusivism, and I think it's important to make the distinction. The next one is inclusivism, or the view that while one's own religious views are most correct, other religious views also have valuable truths that may, but are less likely to, lead to salvation. Yeah, and so what we're looking at with inclusivism is that mind simply has more truth, not the mind has the only truth, and so it differs from exclusivism in that respect. Also, mind is the one that would lead to the greatest degree of light, but that doesn't mean that all the others don't lead to some degree of light and, and connection. And mind is the one that may give the most complete and fullest access to God or salvation or exaltation, but that doesn't mean that others don't also lead to a degree of light and salvation. All right, next is pluralism, or basically just the view that all religious views are equally true or valid within their own culture and all lead to salvation some way or another. Yeah, so pluralism is just the view that you were expressing. All religions are true, and they're all equally salvific. It just doesn't matter. I mean, in fact, there's a branch of quasi-Christianity and quasi-everything else called universalism, and it, it adopts this pluralism. It's just saying, you know, everything's just as true as anything else, and everything's just as salvific as everything else. And I'll add the kicker, at least for this type of a belief system, they may equally all be unsalvific because none of them may be true. We're just doing the best that we can, and we like getting together to have breakfast together. All right, and then, so, you know, there's pluses and minuses to each of these, and I, I think, I mean, we're going to talk about maybe where of official or mainstream Mormonism would land, but I think various people that I've met within Mormonism, they hold all these views, they're not the same person, but various people have held basically all these exclusivists or inclusive or even pluralism within Mormonism of people that I've met. But you say, you know, more of what it's pointing to and that I guess would be more official, I guess. You say, I call the peculiar Mormon version of other religions open inclusivism because it acknowledges that salvation is open to all and that truth is open to all religious traditions in the sense that it is acknowledged that all religions have some valuable truths that lead to greater light and thus to greater divine glory and progression. So, like I said, I've heard some talk within Mormonism that would lead one to think that we have exclusivist views, but I think, at least along the teachings of what Joseph Smith was teaching, it's, it's right, you'd arrive more at what you've described here as open inclusivism. And certainly there are elements of exclusivism. For instance, the only way to salvation is through Christ, and that would be an exclusivist type of view. And Mormons accept that. The only way to salvation is through Christ is just that everybody will be saved. The Doctrine and Covenants 76, following the Pauline type of language in Philippians, says that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is the Christ. When this occurs in section 76, a person is redeemed, meaning that they're redeemed from the effects of the fall. That is what it means to have been mortal and subject to forgetting all about God. And so when we're redeemed from the fall, we're saved. We are saved in a kingdom of glory. And everybody will have a kingdom of glory. However, and this is the thing I don't think most people understand about Section 76, after a person is saved, a person can reject salvation by openly denying Christ, with full knowledge that they're denying Christ. And so these people become sons of perdition. They reject the salvation that they had attained. But everyone is initially saved. Frankly, the number of people who will be, quote-unquote, sons of perdition or not saved is de minimis. It's so small that it's hardly an exception at all because the number is, is really so small. Now, that doesn't mean they don't exist. But for us, they don't exist because they exist in a world all their own and they won't reach out to us. And so for all intents and purposes, as for us, they don't exist. That's an exclusivist position that adopts a more or less universal salvation position. But it gets nuanced because as every Christian believes, every Christian receives a reward in judgment based upon what one does in the body or by works. And so one is saved by salvation and through grace, one is judged and receives reward according to judgment by works. And depending on how we conduct our lives, the light is either greater or lesser in us. And so there will be people at every degree of light. There's an infinite number of degrees of light. Section 76 uses illustrative types of analogies by comparing it to the light of the stars, the light of the moon, and the light of the sun. Of course, they differ from one another, but it's really just a way of saying 
everybody's at a different degree of light. Everybody receives different levels of light, different brilliance of light in their own lives. And the fact that I may have had a brilliant degree, I may regress. And the fact that I didn't have much light earlier may be changed by the fact that I grow in the light. This is a very dynamic living reality. It's not a, a static reality. And I suspect that it is ongoing for all eternity. And so we have this kind of universalism in Mormonism that recognizes that we're all on the same path together. We're all open to these degrees of light. But what Mormonism teaches is that if one wants the fullest degree of light, then there are certain conditions that must be observed. One must be baptized. One must accept the blessings of the priesthood through eternal marriage. In order to be exalted, one must grow in, in the light until the perfect day based upon the kind of light that is made available through the ordinances of God that are there to teach us how to be like him. And so Mormonism, again, has this type of exclusivism in that if you want the highest degree of glory in, in the celestial kingdom known as exaltation, then the only way through that is through Mormonism. That's not to say, however, that every other person doesn't have some degree of light and a level of salvation. But we're all on the same path. I mean, the fact that there are certain conditions shouldn't come, in my view, shouldn't come as a surprise. One of the universal conditions is that in order to be qualified to participate fully in the light, one must learn to love as God loves. There's just no other way. And if we love God, we will do what he asks us to do. That's a part of what it means to love God. And God has asked us to be baptized. He's asked us to observe certain ordinances so he can teach us what only can be observed through the experiential knowledge gained through those ordinances. He has asked us to do certain things in order to show our faithfulness and commitment to him. And that's appropriate. And so there's this soteriological universalism, which is a form of pluralism in Mormonism, conditioned by these kinds of requirements to achieve the greatest glory. Now that's soteric exclusivism and, and inclusivism and pluralism. This is also soteric in nature. But it also has the same kind of a view with respect to religious knowledge. There may be people who, well, undoubtedly there are people who know the Bible far better than I do and understand some of what Jesus is teaching and have incorporated in their lives far better than I who are not Mormon. And I have no doubt that there are many, many, many such people and that I don't see their greater light, but they can see where I am. But the commitment of Mormonism is that when an honest heart encounters the restoration and what God is doing in reestablishing his kingdom of God on earth, that their hearts will resonate. And because of their love and commitment to God, that they will be open to accept that message to move forward. I'll just summarize this quote here, which touches on some of the things that you just talked about. But you say, though Mormonism basically claims that they have the fullness of the gospel, which you say you take that to mean, like you said, that they have all that is necessary for both salvation and exaltation, which has been revealed and is available within the Mormon religion. However, no Mormon's going to claim that all revelation has already been revealed. That would conflict with the express practice of continuing revelation, which is a hallmark of Mormonism. And as you said, you know, if you study other religions, there's definitely valuable and instructive truths to be learned within any religion or tradition. And it also entails that people who are members of these other traditions can have valuable religious and spiritual experiences from which Mormons can learn a lot regarding divine revelations. So just the fact that other religions have or claim to have spiritual experiences outside of Mormonism doesn't challenge Mormonism except maybe to the extent that a claim would reveal something directly conflicting with Mormon revelations, but we'll get into that a bit later. The bottom line is that no Mormon could claim that non-Mormons don't have spiritual experiences, right? So, like Wilfred Woodruff, who had many visions before he was a Mormon, he actually had a friend, you know, we've talked about this earlier, Robert the Prophet, who had revelations. Of course, those revelations were consonant with the Restoration, because he had revelations that the Restoration was about to occur. But that others outside Mormon belief systems will have revelations, will have direct contact with God is a part of what Mormonism teaches. It's just That's just the case about what it means to be a human being. So Mormonism is not a kind of epistemic exclusivism, but it's also not a form of pluralism. It's not that just anything is true, and it's not that just anything is fully salvific or fully exalting. I think that there are strengths and weaknesses, and I think that exclusivism and pluralism have some overwhelming weaknesses. 
And I think inclusivism embodies the strengths of those two views and generally avoids the weaknesses that they manifest. All right. And then in conclusion of that section, you say, at least in your view, the resolution to the argument about conflicting religious beliefs that we talked about at the beginning is to reject the erroneous assumption that differing religious beliefs entail that all religions must be false. So it is true that not all can be literally true given their conflicting beliefs. However, the fact that religions differ does not entail that they are all false. It only entails that one or more of them is not entirely true. So it's a subtle distinction maybe, but a large distinction in you know, what the claim is. In fact, well, I'll go a little further and say that it may well be the case that none of them is entirely true. Given the fact of continuing revelation, no Mormon could claim that we have all the truth. <laughs> or that we have a full understanding of the truths that have been revealed. Because maybe something that will be revealed in the future will put something that we think we know in such a different light that we would have to deny it. At least in my own belief system, that's been true in the way I've grown in my understanding of my own beliefs. Having said that, I want to put in a good word for the Zendavestas and Zoroastrianism. I think that everybody in particular could benefit from Zoroaster is also known as Zarathustra, depending on which of the versions you read. But I believe that Zoroaster was a true prophet in the sense that he, he received knowledge from God. He was a pivotal figure in the development of all religions in the Middle East and during the, what's called the axial period of religion and development of culture. And I think he was a central figure in moving the Western world and all religions forward in a quantum leap, if you will. So I think he's a very important figure that doesn't get enough attention. But that also means that there may be people who have true revelations now. I talk to people all the time who, who aren't Mormons. They have. I was talking to a girl the other day. She had an important dream that was particularly revelatory for her. And I think that these are valuable types of communications from God to these people. And certainly none of that should threaten any Mormon in a belief system or in what we believe is the nature of salvation. And we're going to talk more about differing religious beliefs. But first, you kind of take a, not like a side journey, but you kind of need to explain this first, what we're going to talk about before the next part will make sense. So we talk about the relation of experience and interpretation to spiritual knowledge. You know, we talked a lot about how the religious experiences in general, but now that we are going to have to kind of assess other people's and judge them against our own, we need to understand what is going on there. So a guy named Peter Moore developed a typology of religious experiences that suggests that there are basically four possibilities for the role of interpretation in relation to spiritual experiences. And if you remember, we talked about how if a religious experience is knowledge of a noumena or truth as it is, then we must have some sort of interpretation at some point of that that is phenomenal or coming from us and our interpretation of that. Anyway, so we'll go over each of them. The first one he calls after-the-fact interpretation, which he explains doctrinal interpretations are formulated after the spiritual experiences. Thus, if there's like you have an experience at a certain time, then at a later time, that's when it's interpreted to be an experience of God or of some truth. Yeah, let me give an example. So you're sitting there and you're seeing a sunset, and the next day you wake up and you realize that the sunset was a true revelation from God to you about the beauty of the earth. I think a lot of people have had that kind of experience, but that would be a, an experience of that type. And then the second one is called before-the-fact interpretation. One has doctrinal beliefs that cause or condition one to have an experience interpreted through the categories and noetic structure consisting of the prior beliefs. So this is basically that you exist within a community, and this is probably the one that critics of Mormonism would try to hoist upon Mormonism, saying, oh, well, you have this thing, and you prime people to have a spiritual experience, and then you go and have them, say, read the Book of Mormon, and then tell them they're going to have a spiritual experience, and this is what it's going to look at. And then they pray and have a spiritual experience, and then because of all this primer, then they interpret it in a certain way based on that. So is that kind of... Yeah, if I've understood correctly, this is the kind of thing that Brian Birch is urging through kind of a Wittgensteinian look at Mormonism. But it, what it does is it reduces the experience to merely a cultural expression and nothing more. Or one could interpret it this way. There's a true religious experience, but then in dealing with the experience... The total content of the experience is an experience that's given by one's culture. So I have an experience, 
but the meaning, import, and nature of the experience is given to any content that it has only through the prior interpretation provided. So in Birchian terms, I'll, I'll put it like this, and I hope I've properly understood him. You know, we tell people they're going to have a spiritual experience. We tell them what it's going to be like, and then they have it because we've explained to them what it is. And then if they're having an experience, we say to them, oh, look, that's you're having a spiritual experience because otherwise they're not going to recognize it. So we're priming them and prodding them. But I, I think on that view, it's very easy to conclude it's kind of a made-up type of an interpretation overlaid in experience that really ain't a spiritual experience. I think it leads to a view that these are just all made up. And this is one way of doing it. So what is logically prior is the tradition, which is the only content that there is. The experience itself really has no content. I just brought that up as like a way that people try to frame Mormon experiences to meet that. But there's a positive way to view this model as well, meaning maybe saying that if you have a spiritual experience, then you know maybe the language you have for it is coming from your culture. And so like you just, for example, I think, I can't remember exactly, but there's in some older cultures or something, they didn't have a name for the color blue or something like that. And so like if you pointed at the sky, they didn't have like a language that could tell them that something was blue. And so they had no concept of blue. So when they looked at it, you know, they'd be like, oh, that's close to whatever they had a language for. Like, oh, that's close to, that's a, a little bit off red or something, just because they didn't have language to express it. But you know, this doesn't have to be negative. It's just saying that this is the tools that you have to work with to understand the experience, which isn't necessarily negative, but I can see yeah, well, where it can be twisted. What's, what's, being, what's being asserted here is that it's what comes prior to the experience that is actually the content and meaning of the experience. There's no real meaning to the experience itself. However, there's another way to parse that, and that is, on my own view, there is no propositional or cognitive truth that is being experienced. One is having an existential experience, knowing the truth in one's own being that is experiencing directly uh, noumena. When it's expressed in language, however, it needs to be interpreted through the categories of that language, cultural understanding, and so forth. And so whenever we talk about it, it gets interpreted. What I'm denying is that the, the content and meaning of the experience is fully provided by one's culture. The next two are interpretation given in experience. So basically one has an experience which is experienced as or mediated through conceptual categories as a certain thing and thus the interpretation is spontaneously formulated in the experiencing of the experience. So in the very experience itself the interpretation is already present. So in content terms I can't really have a consciousness of something without my categories being involved, right? So let's expand the categories beyond the content categories, what's logically necessary for experience, to things like my prior experiences, my memory, my vocabulary, and prior experiences that I've had in the culture in which I live. All of these are already inherent in any experience that I have. So in the very experiencing of it, I bring myself to it, and I cannot experience anything apart from that history and cultural setting and everything. So the very experience includes all of these already in it, as a part of the experience itself, because the experience would have no meaning but for the interpretation inherent in the experience itself. I'm not reducing the experience to all of that, but I am conscious of it only to the extent that it is mediated through those kinds of categories in the experiencing of it. I don't know, maybe that's more along the lines of what I was talking about then. So like you only have language and the ability to recognize what you have some like a concept for. Is that or in that category? Yeah, yeah. In, in other words, it can have conscious meaning in your experience only to the extent that it's brought to consciousness through, through experiencing it through these already existing categories. And so it's impossible for humans to have any knowledge of anything but their phenomenology. This is the way the phenomenology proceeds, by the way. We never have any access to any truth. All we experience are phenomena. And so anything that we're doing is we impose on everything, our prior experiences, belief systems, and so forth. We impose all that, and what we're experiencing is merely what we impose upon it, because it, it can't have any meaning without that. That's phenomenology, okay? So I experience phenomena, but never have any contact with the noumena. Even though I am a noumenon, they overlook that fact. I have contact with phenomena, because only a noumena could have that kind of experience in the first place, which is where my theory differs. All right, and the fourth one is experience without interpretation. So this is... Just basically the claim that one has an experience that is raw, a raw experience, which is unaffected by prior beliefs or interpretation inherent in the categories of experience or later added onto the experience to make sense of it. So this is kind of like something's like, I don't know what that was, but it was something. 
Well, the classical mystical experiences fit this. So they have experiences that can't be discussed. They're completely beyond any human expression whatsoever. They're ineffable is the way to say that. And so the experience itself is just raw, basic experience without any way to interpret it in any human terms. And this is the way that the classic mystics speak. They have something that is so far beyond any interpretation that any interpretation would simply elude them. Then they go on for chapters and chapters explaining what the experience is, what it means, and how to interpret it. I mean, we kind of got into some of these other paragraphs and for sake of time. Just kind of sum up, I guess, what, I mean, we already talked about it, but sum up what Brian Birch and Stephen Katz are trying to say about spiritual experiences that, as it relates to what we just talked about. Essentially, their position reduces spiritual experiences to merely the forms of culture or form, the forms of life and the meaning provided by one's own culture, and there's nothing more to it than that. So it's a completely secular explanation or reduces to a completely secular explanation. I don't know that Brian Birch intends a completely circular or secular explanation, but his explanation is both circular and secular, and that's what my argument is. The argument I give in the paper is fairly involved, so I don't want to you know, just say that when the book comes out, take a, a close look at it. But the bottom line is essentially this. The meaning of my experiences, at least in terms of my knowledge and so forth, is given in the forms of life and so forth. I'll give you an example. I say, this thing is sick. When I was growing up, that meant it was rotten or it was something wrong with it. More recently, it means that thing is really great. <laughs> okay. It's sick. Now, maybe that's passed out of usage already, but if one didn't live in the culture, one wouldn't know the proper usage of that term. And the meaning of the term is given in the way that it's actually used in, as it is lived in one's own community, place, and time. And it has no meaning beyond that. I mean, calling something sick has no meaning besides the meaning that we give it. It's the same with any spiritual experiences that we have. The meaning of the experiences will be given by the forms of life and, and our cultural concepts and everything else. And there is no way to determine a valid religious experience from an invalid religious experience because to do so, we would have to refer to those very forms of life themselves in order to make that determination. But we can't get beyond the forms of life because that's all that's being experienced. So it's a circular explanation, and there's no way out of the circular explanation. One is stuck. And again, we have merely this phenomenology, but the phenomenology this time is provided by the forms of life and meaning of, of language as we speak it. So Wittgenstein is basically a linguistic analysis, if you will, and that's the kind of argument is made there. Katz is looking primarily at the kind of literature that one sees in the Jewish pseudepigrapha and, and Jewish spiritual experiences, and he's noticing, look how Jewish these things are. I mean, they have these visions, but all of them are expressed in the same terminology that's given by their Jewish culture. And he's saying it just reduces to the Jewish culture that they're in. There's no real religious experience. They're just expressing their culture. Um, that kind of a thing. Okay, and then do this real quick here. You don't have to expound too much, but I drew a parallel from within current Mormon culture, I guess. So John Hick has recently proposed what he terms an essentialist view of the mystical experience, which holds that there is a single reality that is experienced that constitutes the essence of the spiritual experience, meaning it's all kind of the same thing. But he argues that the diverse interpretations of the mystical experiences are like a Rorschach test variously interpreted. And I recall a recent talk by Elder, not recent maybe, but a talk by Elder Uchtdorf where he gives this analogy of like a bunch of blind guys feeling an elephant and each describing it and one's like touching the trunk. He's like, it's sort of snake-like and one's touching the body and he's like, no, it's thick and hairy. And everyone touches the tail and is like, no, it's bushy and moving around all over the place. So they're all correct from a certain point of view, but they're only seeing part of it. But still what they're doing is having an actual experience of something that's beyond themselves that's not given in their culture. I mean, so for instance, they feel the elephant's leg and say, it's, it's like a tree stump. Well, it's not really a tree stump, and saying it's like a tree stump is just mistaken. Having a partial experience, and, and look, I think we'd all agree because the revelation isn't complete, we only have a partial experience, we only have a partial truth, and that part that we're seeing might not give us a full picture of the elephant, right? But I think this is a useful analogy. It may be, for instance, that certain religions have a better grasp on things than we do. They've pondered on them more. They've reflected on, on what they mean more. And so we have a lot to learn from them because this is the kind of thing that their experiences produce. And I think that we ought to learn. And maybe they're seeing a part of the truth that we're not quite in touch with. So I think this is a valuable way of looking at things. However, to say that there is one single truth that's just expressed 
variously in ways that are all wrong. And I give a critique of John Hick. Again, it's going to take some time to get into more time than we have. But it goes back to the fact that they can't all be correct. John Hick, by the way, passed away some time ago. He was a brilliant philosopher of religion. His book, Evil and the God of Love, is one of the best treatments of the problem of evil and a theodicy I think one is going to find. So I have an immense respect for John Hick, but he passed from being a Christian became kind of a universalist. And I don't think his theory will hold water when it is scrutinized. I think it just falls apart. He departs from Kant and says what everybody is, is doing is explaining the noumena in different ways. And I don't think that the way he's parsing it is a way that will make much sense for anybody in a particular religious tradition. So if one gives up all religious traditions and then says, I belong to all religious traditions, then we are back at the problem that we began with. They can't all possibly be true in the literal sense. And one does not have any kind of form of life or practice in a community. It means that one is a part of a particular community in that sense. So I think Hick himself realized that there were real limitations to what sense one could make because one has to be a part of a particular community to have the kind of experience he's talking about. But he's talking about it from a perspective that transcends being a part of a particular community. So it's inherently self-defeating because it takes two different contradictory stances. For sake of time, let's just jump to your view or explanation here. So you talk about spiritual experience or the burning in the bosom, and you give a visual, which I can't explain very well. So why don't you explain your view, if you would? Okay, so I'm going to give a concrete example, and then we'll talk about how this works. So you've got a person who's an investigator and a missionary who is, you know, they hand them the Book of Mormon, and they begin to read the Book of Mormon, and they respond to the message in the Book of Mormon. So there's a manifestation or expression of the truth, and then they have this non-cognitive response confirming the truth. A burning in the bosom is not a propositional assertion, okay? It's not saying, oh, I'm having revelation, and the words of the revelation are as follows. What's happening is there's a confirmatory relationship between the Book of Mormon and one's experience of knowing the truth in one's own heart. And then later, as they reflect upon it, they give language to it to express Oh, as I was reading the Book of Mormon, I just had this sensation, this feeling, this overwhelming knowing come upon me, and I know what it says is true. And then somebody is stupid enough to ask, well, what do you mean when you say it's true? Do you mean all the words written there are the truth? Well, yeah, every word in the Book of Mormon is true as a result because it's been confirmed to me. Well, what about further revelations that say that what's revealed in the Book of Mormon is incomplete? So, for instance, the Book of Mormon teaches about a single heaven and a single hell. And that's not quite true anymore, is it? Oh, well, you've just blasted away my testimony now. So anyway, so what I'm saying is we have this manifestation or this expression of truth to which our hearts respond in a confirmatory knowing relationship. And then as we express it later to people, we interpret it in a way that's given to us in our own language. And so the meaning of our language, we can't really express it. We can't convey the meaning of, of the experience because it's experiential knowledge. And we cannot verbally convey experiential knowledge, but we can describe it as best we can and give meaning to it. And then we begin to give doctrinal meaning to it. Like, well, you know, Alma said that the fact is, is that everybody, when they die, they go to meet that God who gave them life. It's like, so we go directly to God when we die. And it's like, well, there's been further light knowledge revealed about that. So, yes, Alma was a prophet. What he's saying is true, but... It's put into a different perspective by further revelations. So I, I hope that's a good explanation of the relationship between the basic expression of the truth, the heart responding to the truth. But what it's responding to at a more deep level isn't the propositional knowledge per se. It's responding to the fact that God is in the production of this. God is in the deliverance of this. And it's good enough for where you are right now. There will be more given later. That kind of a thing. Okay. And yeah, the last two podcasts we did kind of go into that a bit more too. So... Next, and this is a bigger section, but I think we can sum up the first part pretty well and then get to the, the kind of the meat of it pretty quickly. So the next is called the objection from conflicting religious experiences. So this is a, as opposed to conflicting religious belief systems or doctrines. So this is actual experiences. So some claim that if you have this argument, Mormons claim to have spiritual experiences. Non-Mormons also claim to have spiritual experiences. Both of those can't be true at the same time. Therefore, at least one of them is false. So... And it's definitely true that people are claiming to have spiritual experiences that are not Mormon, so therefore it's false that Mormon religious experience can be a trustworthy basis for knowledge of truth based on that. But, I mean, you blow that particular version of the argument away pretty quickly. You just say, well, premise three is false. 
Mormonism doesn't say that people outside of their tradition can't have genuine spiritual experiences. That's just not true. It's, it's not even a problem. In fact, you even point out, you say, you know, Mormonism would point out that people outside of their religion might have greater light than some people within Mormonism. And some people are more spiritually sensitive and more spiritually advanced than people of Mormonism. Therefore, you know, that doesn't really hold much water. There's a distinction here that I think is important to make in addressing this and in, in addressing the next argument. So when a person says, I know the church is true, I think they're making a kind of an assertion where if somebody says, well, it can't be true because it asserts that, you know, within the tradition it asserts this and that's shown to be false. But let me give an analogy. It's like somebody getting up in testimony saying, I know the legal system is true, or I know that Euclid's geometry is true, <laughs> okay, so that the, all sides of an oscillator's triangle are equal, or I know that Fortran is true. I know that Fortran is a true computer language. It works. Well, the statements and propositions within these gain meaning only within the system as a whole. So it's true within the American system of law that people can have civil liability for torts or for you know things that, that cause personal injury or harm, even though it isn't intentional, it's only negligent. And that wasn't true before a number of certain developments in law. It's now true, but the terms of negligence and what constitutes liability within negligence only have meaning within that context of that particular legal system. I'm not sure that one can assert that any particular legal system is true. <laughs> I think one can assert that it's more or less functional, but I don't think that one can assert that the entire system is true. It just doesn't have meaning to do that. And yet I think that a lot of people take what they mean when they say, I know the church is true, to be that kind of an assertion. I know the entire system of beliefs and everything that we do is true. It's literally the kind of thing that couldn't be true because it's a, a category mistake in the way that logic works. And so statements within a system have meaning in first-order logic, but the system as a whole is neither true or false. It's just the way that, that propositions within the system hold together. That's really important to understand, I think. So the, the problem arises this way in first-order logic. The question arises, do Christians, for instance, worship the same God as Muslims? Do they both have a true system of belief? Um, it can be pointed out, for instance, in First Order Logic, that a Muslim believes as follows. There is one God. Allah is that one God. And certainly, the Trinity is not Allah, because Allah is not a Trinity by any means. And so, from a Muslim's perspective, classical or Orthodox Christianity is definitely false. And contrary to their belief system, and if they have an experience of Allah, and they have these beliefs, then the experience that they have with Allah necessarily entails that Christianity in any form that adopts the Trinity is false. And so here we have a genuine conflict. We have a conflict that arises, but I want to, for instance, reframe that. If we assert that the one God we're referring to is the same God that spoke to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, albeit under a different name, then I say Allah is the God who spoke with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the God that Jesus worshipped is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and therefore we have the same God. It would seem to follow that I could prove to a, a Muslim that we have the same God, because now we're referring to the same being. There are different ways of referring to God, and it depends on how we refer as to whether in first-order logic we actually have a conflict in our belief systems. The bottom line is we have to be very careful about how we parse the conflicting beliefs because I can both prove that Allah is the same God and that Allah is not the same God as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But when it comes to these kinds of doctrinal conflicts, I don't think that there are really doctrinal conflicts because I think there are different ways that we can parse these things to say that we're all worshiping the same being. If there is a God, and if he is personal, or, or he or she is personal, then when we pray to this God, even if we're mistaken about the gender, identity, or whatever, certainly God is going to cut us a break because we are limited in knowledge. After all, if there is a God, he's the one who put us in our limited cognitive situation and certainly would understand why we have these limited cognitive access to the truth about the truth about God. And so if we pray to God, I don't think that God's going to care much about more than our authenticity. That's one way of saying that everybody's prayers are efficacious. However, there would have to be limitations because Buddhists and Confucians and so forth don't even believe in a personal God. I don't think it makes much sense to pray to an impersonal force in the universe. I don't think it makes much more sense than praying to electricity, for instance. But in those systems, they actually have prayer to ancestors and so forth. 
in, in a certain way of, of parsing the nature of prayer. So maybe in some way we're still engaging in the same kind of practices because they're still very powerful beings who can help us that they believe that they can pray to. I think the way that we get a real conflict is if, for instance, you give the Book of Mormon to somebody and you say, ask God. I mean, I can't tell you what your experience is, but I'm going to tell you to ask God. And they come back and say, you know, I did it my best. I read it. I read it several times. This was vital to me. I'm very sincere because I've just got to know. And I asked, and I just, I just feel that it's wrong. It just doesn't feel right to me. It doesn't make sense. And, and in my mind, I heard a voice say, you know, get away from this untruth. <laughs> And so I don't want to be part of this. What do we say about that? And what does it mean for one's own religious experiences? I think this is where the rubber actually hits the road in terms of conflicting direct personal experiences. Do we then say, oh, that person's spiritual experience disproves my spiritual experience? And the answer is no. In fact, remember earlier we've stated that one's own subjective spiritual experience is not evidence to any person. And it's not evidence in the strictest sense, but it is knowledge to the person who has the experience directly. And we have very strong reason to give our own personal experience priority over any other, and that's because it's the only thing that we are really grounded in reality, it's the only thing that existentially we're connected with, and that we really can have any knowledge of in the sense of, of existential knowledge. And so, by parity of reason, if my spiritual experiences are not evidence for or against the truth of my belief uh, and the meaning of my spiritual experience, by parity of reason, neither are theirs. Their spiritual experience has no evidentiary value for or against anything that I've experienced or know, because I have a unique access to my own experience. And so it has epistemic and logical priority in every way for me. And so I'm stuck with my experience. And not, not only am I stuck with it, I'm gladly stuck with it, because it's what resonates to the core of my being, and I couldn't possibly be otherwise. So that person doesn't have a spiritual experience that has any evidential validity for me to disprove in any way what I know to be the case based upon my own existential communications. Next two sections we'll do fairly quickly, but we'll just get the main concepts down. So the next is the relativity of degrees of light theory of religious diversity. So because of these degrees of light, you say thus, the differences in knowledge of spiritual truth is referable to a combination of three things. A access to the revelations that have been given in the tradition which any particular individual stands, b, willingness to accept the light which emanates from such traditions, and c, one's openness to further light and knowledge through personal revelation. So, the reason that any individual would have a varying or sometimes conflicting religious belief and confirming spiritual experiences of those various beliefs is a function of at least those three factors. And you, you just clarified it. So both this willingness to accept new light from other traditions and openness to personal revelation would be impaired by having a closed heart. But if you had an open heart, you would receive further light and knowledge, as we say. But then you, you just go on to say, no one is in a position to assess or judge the degree of light possessed by another individual. An individual cannot know what has been revealed to someone else. All we can assess is, you know, our own light and knowledge that's been revealed to us. Yeah, what I'm really saying is we can't judge at what spiritual level another person is, at what level of light they are either regressing or progressing or static. We're not in a position to judge because we simply cannot know that. However, it may be that at times we see the light emanating from another person. It may be at times we see the countenance of Christ in their image. And at times it may be that, you know, we see the goodness or light in a person it doesn't mean that we fully encompass that person or understood where they are and we're not in a position to judge. It's just that something of their spiritual light has been revealed to us. I think we have experiences like that. I, see we, I think we see from time to time the light in other individuals. But we're really not in a position, we're never in a position to judge whether somebody has greater light or lesser light than we do. All right, and then, yeah, it just drives home the point that you made in the last section that someone else's spiritual experience is not necessarily going to be a defeater for my understanding of my own spiritual experience, and likewise yours can't be one for them. So there's various degrees of light, but I guess we're not necessarily stuck, but we're limited to understanding what's been revealed to us, and so that's all we can go off of. Yeah, moreover, when one stands in the truth of, of one's knowing in one's own being, it's impossible to doubt. The knowledge is made manifest and eminent. However, when one doesn't stand in that relation of an existential groundedness in being, 
then one only has a memory of having once done that, and a memory isn't knowledge, and it's easily doubted. And so, you know, we can stand in the spiritual experience knowing the joy in our hearts, the beauty of the burning in the bosom that we talk about, the love that we feel from God. But I want to emphasize again that there's a vast difference between a person who has a memory of once having experienced that and a person who is experiencing it. Only the person who is actually standing in that confirmation relationship with an existential communication stands in knowledge. A person who once stood in that knowledge doesn't have knowledge. One has a memory, and that is then transformed because the memory is not standing in knowledge at all. In fact, it has a very different relationship because it's a phenomenal experience rather than standing as a noumenon in reality, rather than standing on one's taking a stand genuinely in one's own being in, in reality. One is merely watching oneself having once taken that stand, wondering what it meant. It's And I've made this analogy before. It's as vast as the difference between a person who's in a loving, fulfilling relationship and a person who's no longer in that relationship and merely wonders what it was once like to be in that relationship. One does not have that relationship any longer, and as a result, one does not stand in relationship any longer and can't claim that they have a relationship. And all knowledge is relational. When we stand in the reality of our being, we find God already present in our being. All right, and then the very last argument against spiritual experiences, especially in light of other religions, is called the argument from arrogance. So the argument goes like this. It's arrogant to believe that one has or possesses the truth or is more favored than any other religious tradition. With the sheer number of religious traditions, the chances of being born into the true religion are minuscule, and insisting that one has the truth smacks of simple cultural imperialism and arrogance. So, you know, I hear this argument a lot. It's like, oh, so you just happen to be the right religion and all the other religions are wrong? Hmm, that's interesting, because that's something that an arrogant person would say that's just not, uh, you know, not aware of their limitations. An unreflective, arrogant person would make that kind of assertion. I give a parody logical argument. Parody in two sense. It has logical parody because it has the same logical structure, and parody, P-R-O-D-Y, because it's a parody of this argument. And that is, the chances that I exist in any given spot in the universe, given the size of the universe, are so remote that it is statistically and probabilistically impossible that I'm in any given place at any given time. But that's clearly false. I, in fact, exist in a given place in a given time. And the fact that it's improbable is not an argument against the fact that I would exist at some given place at some given time. It just so happens that the probability that I exist at a given place at a given time is one, meaning that it's certain. It's not somewhere between zero and one. So this kind of an argument from arrogance is really just a failure to recognize that it just may well be the case that one was that favored. All right. And then, I, you know, just circling it back to what we talked about a couple podcasts ago about self-deception. I mean, there is always the possibility that we are self-deceived about being right about something. So should one remain open to that or what could help overcome this nagging feeling that you, you know, you might be wrong about it all or should we overcome that? Well, if one has a nagging feeling that one is wrong about it all, I give the same advice that Kierkegaard gives and that is to immerse oneself more deeply into one's own existence and connection to their own existence in reality. And so what that means is to reflect on the fact that we actually exist in reality. We're not a mere phenomena. When we're experiencing this core connection with the truth in our very being, then, as I said, it's not really open to doubt. We're experiencing that we stand in the truth. And so the challenge is to open our hearts again, to become immersed in this existential communication to be vulnerable to receive the truth, to be open to it, and to be open to the possibility that the way that we've interpreted the truth, the way that we have parsed the truth, may well be wrong and could be corrected. The fact that we stand in the truth doesn't mean that everything we utter is true. And so when we say that the church is true, I think what we're really saying is something like this. The church has mediated a genuine relationship for me with God. I feel his love. I feel his presence. And I feel that he is calling me to be here. I think that's what's really being asserted. I don't think we're asserting everything I know is true. If we assert that, that is arrogance and stupidity. If we assert, I know that Mormonism is true, I think we kind of make the the category mistake I talked about. It's on par with saying, I know the legal system is true, which is clearly nonsense. And and so when we say, I know the church is true, what we're really saying is, I know God is in the church because I've experienced him here. 
And so I don't hesitate to use this, the word I know, but I parse what I know more carefully in, in the sense that it's an existential communication, not an assertion of propositional truth. It's a relational statement. Everything is about love. Everything is standing in God's love. And at the end of the day, that's what really matters. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com.